welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. I have taught and worked in schools across metropolitan and regional Australia, and I am dedicated to supporting big-hearted educators to prioritise their wellbeing and take courageous action despite the everyday pressures of school life. Because I want educators to know, you don't have to sacrifice your health, relationships and happiness to be a great teacher. Together, we are going to learn the lessons to help us teach well and be well. Let the learning begin. Hello and welcome back to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham. Imagine this, you're on your way to work, running a little late, thinking about the day ahead, and then you realize that you forgot your phone at home. What would you do? Would you keep going to work or would you turn around and get your phone? Today's guest, Dr. Christy Goodwin, is going to share with us how we're becoming more and more dependent on our digital devices and what we can do about it. But before we jump into that, a little update. As many of you know, in February, I made the decision not to publish any new episodes for the month of March because I needed a break after 75 consecutive episodes. And it turned out to be a really good decision. The change of pace gave me the headspace I needed to make some tweaks to the way that I work now that our son has started school. I had no idea what it takes to be a school parent. Between drop off, pick up, school notices, costumes, special events, it is a lot to get your head around. And so I finally feel like we're starting to get some groove. The highlight of the month was an unexpected invitation to be a guest on the Today Show to discuss with Carl and Sarah teacher burnout and ways that we can support teachers. It was an incredible experience. And what came clear to me throughout the process is that I'm in a very unique position because it's rare that the public get to hear from an independent voice. For many educators, strict media policies and the fear of saying the wrong thing leave them unable to share their experiences in honest ways. So as I nervously walked onto the set, I had one clear intention in mind, to use the platform to be a voice for you, a big-hearted and professional educator. If you're interested in watching the full segment, see the show notes for more details. So after a change of podcast pace, I am thrilled to be back and ready to share more heartfelt conversations with you. In today's episode, I have the joy of chatting with Dr. Christy Goodwin. Christy is an award-winning digital wellbeing and productivity expert and is on a mission to help people thrive in the digital world. Christy's book, Dear Digital, We Need a Talk, is a guilt-free guide to taming our tech habits and thriving in a distracted world. This is a game-changing book and it is bursting with practical ways to transform our relationship with our digital devices. And Christy has kindly given me a copy to give away to you. If you're interested in getting a brand new copy of Christie's book, make sure you subscribe to my newsletter for your chance to win. In this conversation, we discuss why are we so tethered to our devices? How to gauge our level of digital dependency? What we can do to take our control back? And so much more. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Christy Goodwin. Christy, welcome back to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I'm so honoured that you invited me back. Thank you. <laughs> I'm thrilled to be back because we're celebrating and talking about your new book, Dear Digital, We Need to Talk. 
So why do we need to talk about digital? I think many of us have developed some unhealthy digital dependencies. I think we all recognise that technology has crept into every single crevice of our lives. It's got its tentacles. It's the technological tentacles into every facet of our lives, both professionally and personally. And whether we love it or whether we loathe it, the harsh reality is that technology is here to stay. I think people are really hankering a healthy relationship with their digital devices. And it's not easy. You know, I think we'd all agree we have a complicated relationship with our devices. They do play that integral role in our lives, but they're also having a profound impact on us. So I think we're at this juncture in time where we're looking for how can I use technology in a way that will help me rather than harm me? How can I use my screen so I'm not a slave to it? Because let's face it, I think many of us feel like we are slaves to our screens. You know, we get an alert, we open it, we get a ping, we quickly divert our attention from what we're doing. It was, you know, a whole lot of things that happened in my life that really drew me to writing the book. So I think we're at a ripe opportunity to start to question our digital habits and behaviours. Yeah, I'm sure so many of us have had moments where we're looking at our phone thinking, what am I doing this for? I don't need to be here. And we just keep looking at that complicated relationship. Sometimes we love it. Sometimes you want to throw it against the wall and trying to get to a space where we have a healthy relationship. So how can we gauge our dependence on technology? Yeah. And there's a lot of conjecture as to whether people, there's often the word thrown around that we're addicted. And I know when we're talking about kids and teens, parents, educators, and health professionals are quick to throw out the term they're addicted. They can't put it down. And we don't yet have a consistent medical criteria as what constitutes a digital addiction. You know, a social media addiction, is very different to a gaming addiction, which is very different to an online shopping addiction, which might be different to an email addiction. But I think if we were all brutally honest with ourselves, many of us would concur that we've got some unhealthy digital habits. We've got some unhealthy, as you said, digital dependencies. And so I look for, are our digital habits impacting encroaching or eroding some of our most basic human needs, our most basic what I call neurobiological needs. Is our green habits impacting our sleep? And the problem with technology is that often the impacts are so prevalent that we've actually forgotten or become immune to recognizing how technology is shaping them. So our green habits are having a huge impact on our sleep, not only how much sleep we get, but we also now know that the deep restorative sleep, so our deep and REM sleep stages are shrinking if we've been on our devices too late into the night. And that has huge impacts on memory consolidation, on our physical and our mental health. So it is certainly impacting all the facets of our lives. Are we not moving? And we know, generally speaking, many of us are far more sedentary than we have ever been. Are we getting enough time in natural sunlight? The current recommendations are for children, teens and adults to get roughly 90 minutes of sunlight a day. The research that I've done in schools in the last couple of years, we've done a student digital wellbeing assessment. Overwhelmingly, the majority of secondary school students are not getting anywhere close to that 90 minutes of sunlight a day. Sunlight exposure is really important for all sorts of basic biological mechanisms. You know, it affects our sleep. We know it has a huge impact on our eyesight. And we now know that is why we're seeing huge rates of nearsightedness in all of us, because we're not getting that natural sunlight to help offset that myopic progression. So it's impacting us in really subtle ways. So I often look at 
is it impacting some of those biological needs? Are we moving? Are we sleeping? Are we connecting? You know, we need connection with real people. Our brains make oxytocin, that social bonding love hormone when we're with real people in a way that text messages and DMs just simply can't replicate. Then I look at some other, and these are funny, but they really point to some unhealthy digital habits. Look at our relationship, particularly with our phones. Um, They really have become our digital appendage. And in the book, I use some terms. They're funny, but they really point to quite a serious issue. You know, do you suffer from nomophobia, fear of not having your phone in close proximity? You know, when you head out of the house, you go into the classroom, you think, where did I put my phone down? Did I leave it in the staff room? Is it in the car? Did I leave it at home? Study was done a couple of years ago in LA where there's lots of traffic and they asked people who would travel home in the morning if you got to work and thought you'd left your phone at home. 72% of people in this study would confront traffic in LA and return to home to get their digital devices. So nomophobia, many people suffer from a condition called phantom vibration syndrome. It's that tingling feeling that your phone or your smartwatch is vibrating and it's nowhere near your physical body. We've got 47% of us are allegedly toilet tweeters using our phones in the bathroom. We're experiencing a whole range of issues like tech neck and gaming thumb, or they call it text claw. So there's a whole lot of behavioral changes that we're seeing because of our reliance on technology. So it's hard to give you a sort of diagnostic criteria, but I think if we can recognize our tech habits are shaping us and are influencing us and having an impact, then we might start to appreciate that we may in fact need to question how we're digitally dependent. As you say that, It brings up such a picture of all these tiny ways that we're more tethered than ever before. Thinking about going to the toilet with your phone, thinking about going outside, you have to have your phone. Everywhere you go, feeling like you have to have that phone and the idea of not having it makes you want to turn around in traffic and get it. So why are we so seduced by technology? saw a great intro the other day of somebody talking about In years gone by, we used to get in the car and you wouldn't say, oh my goodness, I left every single board game inside the house. I left my compass. I left my torch inside the house. I left all my photo albums inside the house. I left the encyclopedias in the house. I left the video camera in the house. Let me go back inside and get it and grab them all. Like we have become so infatuated, especially with our phones. And it's no accident. I think that there's three main reasons why we're so attached to technology. And if you work with students, as I know many of your listeners do, this is why they have become attached to their digital devices too. This is why kids and teens throw techno tantrums. This is why we find it increasingly harder to focus. The three reasons I think the first one is that our technologies, both professionally and personally, have met our most basic psychological needs as humans. Self-determination theory suggests that as humans, we have three fundamental needs, the need to connect, the need to feel competent, and the need to feel like we have some control. And the online world caters for those. You know, we feel that need for connection is fueled by group chats, social media, multiplayer video games. The need to feel competent is met when people reply to our DMs or reply to the email and when we triage our inbox and it goes from 60 unread emails down to zero and we all know inbox zero lasts momentarily. We asked kids recently, why do you boys? We said, why do you love gaming so much? And it broke my heart as a mum to three sons to read some of these responses. Many of the boys said, I game because it's the only time in the day where anybody tells me I'm doing a good enough job. 
so they get tangible measures and metrics of their success. For our girls, it's the social media vanity metrics, and they get to feel some control. So that's the first reason. The second reason I think we're all tethered to technology is because the way we interact with our devices changes our neurobiology. We get hits of dopamine, which makes us feel good when we're scrolling social media, when we're plowing through our inboxes, when we're applying to student questions on our LMS. And so that dopamine conditions us to want more and more of it. The other problem is that when our brain is getting those hits of dopamine, the part of our brain, the prefrontal cortex that helps regulate our behavior, it switches off. And so it's really hard for us to regulate our behavior when we're doing something perceived as fun or that we're deriving pleasure from. And again, this is why our kids and teens throw techno tantrums, because all of a sudden their brain's firing this dopamine and their prefrontal cortex can't regulate what they're doing. The third reason is that I think we can blame the tech companies. And I know you've had, and please listeners, if you haven't listened to Meg's interview with Johan Hari, if you have not read the book Stolen Focus, that is imperative, compulsory reading. The tech companies are in part to blame. The the tech that we all use and love has designed to be appealing and designed to draw us in and suck us into that vortex. One of the things that I know I struggle with is the infinite scroll. When we're online, we enter something I call the state of insufficiency. In the online world, we'll never feel done. There's always another level, another message, another tab, another episode that I can keep watching. You know, even simple mechanics that we often don't think about, the fact our notification bubble is usually red. Red is a psychological trigger for urgency, danger, important. The fact that our notification bubble has a metric in it telling us how many unread DMs or emails or messages that we need to reply to. So it's the collision, I think, of all of those three factors. It meets our psychological drivers. It causes neurobiological changes. And the third thing is that it's been designed to be persuasive and appealing. And they're hard factors to work against. They really are. As you lay it out like that, Christy, I'm thinking it is really the perfect storm. It couldn't be more perfect in its design in a way to capture our attention and keep us there. And then add in a global pandemic in recent years where people were forced into lockdowns and their only conduit for connection became their devices. What I think we're seeing, particularly in young people, is we're seeing, I colloquially use the term, a digital hangover. We adopted some unhealthy digital habits out of necessity. I'm not making anyone wrong. You know, in our house, our screen time rules certainly were dropped during the pandemic. The problem is we've continued on with some of those habits. And this is what I know educators and health professionals are seeing in young people, that lag effect of some of these behaviors that were adopted during prolonged lockdowns. Yeah, we, it is the super, it is almost like the ideal superstorm, and it's not going away. I think we're going to continue to see digital dependence as we have new ways of working. I know teachers don't always have a huge, you know, control over how they work, but we're certainly seeing shifts in how we're using technology and often in subtle ways. I call it out in schools, tech expectation. You know, do I need to be instantly responsive to a parent email or to an allied health professional's email? Management systems, do I have work that is due at 11.59 p.m. on a date? 
where we know all the students will be staying up late to submit their online assignment or to submit their online work. So it's all of those really subtle ways. You know, my colleagues sending me WhatsApp messages at 11 o'clock at night, the poor person responsible for casual teachers whose phone starts pinging at five o'clock the next morning, the expectation that we now do more video meetings with parent interviews or other providers, really subtle ways that text crept in. And we're trying, I think, on the fly to figure out how we use them sustainably. And this is why I love your work because it's not about removing it. It's about getting curious, looking at it and thinking about new ways to be with technology. So if we don't get a handle on our technology, what are some of the short-term consequences of it for the individual? Yeah, put simply, technology starts to control us. Like we salivate like Pavlov's dog every time we get an alert or a notification. We're taken out of the moment. In terms of short term, I think we're definitely seeing, I want to talk about some of the less obvious ways that our tech's impacting us. So when I was writing the book, I started looking at a lot of the research and we know, as I mentioned before, it's certainly having an impact on our sleep and sleep can have some long-term impacts as well. But Two of the other ways that it's impacting us in the short term is that we breathe in totally different ways when we're on a screen. As humans, we should engage in a physiological sigh every five minutes. That's where we do two inhalations through our nose and an exhalation through our mouth. It's our body's natural built-in mechanism to regulate our stress response. We basically manage our oxygen and carbon dioxide levels. Now, I'm not talking about those of you who work with teenagers. You know the sigh, the very (sighs) exasperated sigh. I'm not talking about that sigh. I'm talking just we do it and we don't even know that we're doing it when we're awake, roughly every five minutes. However, we now know from research that when we're looking at a screen, be that a laptop, a desktop, a tablet, a smartphone, we sigh significantly less. What does that tell us? It elevates our stress response. If we are not regulating our oxygen and carbon dioxide levels, we're often in a sympathetic nervous state. So we're in this fight or flight response. And so we're often stressed just by looking at our screens, just by the the sheer act. Now, another way that we're increasing our stress levels, and this is why I think we're seeing increasing rates of burnout across the board. And unfortunately, educators are not a immune to this trend and this data that we're seeing is that when we look at our screens, we have a very narrow gaze. Our eyes converge. We look at our phone or our laptop. Biologically, this sends a message to our brain that we're in a heightened stress state. There is a potential danger because as humans, we are designed to dilate our gaze. We're designed to look off in the distance. We're designed to watch things much further away, but we are spending the preponderance of our hours of the day with a very narrow gaze. Short term, you can see, you know, these tech habits are making us much more stressed. Another short term impact is we are so distracted. I think we're really quick to point the finger and say kids can't pay attention. Research is telling us that our attention span is shrinking. It's not eight seconds of a goldfish that you may have read about. That is a complete neuromyth, but it is certainly shrinking. And the latest research is saying it used to be around six minutes. In new research that's just about to be published, we're now saying it's about three to four minutes of focused attention before a digital distraction diverts us. So huge impacts on our performance and our productivity with the way we're using these devices. And now I'm kind of scared to ask, but what are some long-term consequences if we don't rein in our tech use? Long-term, I think we're starting to see it. And many people say, what's the long-term impact? 
impact of technology. And I often, as a researcher, have to say, I've got no idea. We are, if I'm really honest, conducting a bit of a living experiment. We're also probably not going to get empirical data that we'd all like because I'm not going to sign myself up to some experiment where there's some potential long-term consequences. What we think from a biological perspective and from a psychological perspective, we know that the sleep impact is huge. We've got many kids, teens and adults not getting enough sleep. And as I know you have talked about frequently on your podcast, sleep's the elixir of life. Sleep is critical for mental health, for physical health and for learning and performance. I think another long-term consequence is musculoskeletal issues. We are spending hours hunched over our device. When we look down at a phone or a tablet, we put the equivalent of 27 kilograms of pressure on our neck. That is akin to having an eight-year-old sit on your shoulders. You just wouldn't do it. It would be excruciating for hours a day. So I think over time, given that we are spending a long time on our devices, we will start to see this. And anecdotally, I'm hearing from chiropractors, from physiotherapists, definitely some musculoskeletal issues related to tech neck and other muscular pains. Also, again, we're sitting for long periods of time and we're not designed. Some really fascinating research said that even if we meet the suggested quota of physical movement in a week, which in Australia is about 180 minutes of what they call zone two cardio. So basically doing any sort of physical activity where you get your heart rate up and it's a little bit hard to have a conversation with someone. Even if we meet that guideline, if we sit for more than five hours a day in total, which most of us easily do now, those benefits from that cardiovascular exercise are completely nullified. So you may be doing the the walk before work. You may be doing an F45 class or a pump class, or you might be an avid swimmer. You might be meeting the guidelines, but if you are sedentary, those benefits are being cancelled. So that can be, I think, a really long-term consequence. And the last one I mentioned before is our vision. We're already starting to see this in the last five years the diagnosed rates of myopia have increased across the board, kids, teens and adults. And it's that absence of getting that sunlight. And we're not quite sure yet what the mechanism is. Is it that when we're outside, the vitamin D from the sunlight helps to elongate our optic nerve? Or is it that when we're outside, we naturally develop that depth of vision? We look at the ball in the distance. We look at the bird. We watch the sunset. It could be a bit of both. So I think, if I'm really honest, we are conducting an experiment, but there's enough preliminary evidence to say there could be some dire consequences on the horizon. I know, Christy, just something that I've thought about since reading your book and how you talk about natural light a lot. When the choice comes between going to the local pool indoors or outdoors, I'm like, oh, we're going outdoors making the effort to go outdoors and be outdoors because even our leisure activities have become more inside. It's funny because technology has made life really, really comfortable. And so, you know, we're hungry, we order Uber Eats. We're we're hot, we turn on the air conditioner. Paul Taylor, I'm sure you may have read some of his work, he's released a book called Death by Comfort and it is phenomenal. It has really changed the way I think about how we have become uncomfortable with being uncomfortable. We have become so conditioned as humans, I think, to be hedonistic, to always pursue the easy, and technology's accelerated that. But as humans, we need to build our stress resilience. Now, I'm not saying we need to stress each other out, but we need to increase, I think, our tolerance of being okay with being uncomfortable. And I love that you've applied what I talk about, 
micro habits, you know, just what are small little tweaks that we can make? Because I live by Mayor Angelo's beautiful saying that when you know better, you do better. And that's what I think we really have to start to look at. What are the small little adjustments we can make to live in a better way with the technology that permeates our days now? Because I'm thinking about it. I know you're a teacher, you're a former teacher. Can you imagine those last few years of your teaching career with this increased digital load and what that potentially could have been like for you? Absolutely not. It would have been catastrophic. And in all honesty, I left teaching and I recognize this now. I certainly didn't at the time. I left teaching because I was completely burnt out. Now, at the time when I left, burnout wasn't part of our vernacular. People said, are you just stressed? You just pushed yourself too hard. And the reality is that I did. I kept going. I ignored the cues that my body was screaming at me. I kept pushing and pushing to the point where I was having repeated seizures. I had a seizure in a classroom full of boys, which was awful, but I didn't listen to those whispers and kept going and going. And I know that has become, you know, pushing and being busy. And this is the pace of schools these days. At the time, the only part of my digital load back then when I was teaching was emails. And it wasn't the constant digital bombardment that we see today. Teachers are telling me that they just can't keep up especially school leaders are saying the same thing, can't keep up with the plethora of communication tools. You know, it's the emails, it's the WhatsApp, it's the Teams chat, it's the the, the constant digital bombardment that is having an impact. So I am worried. I didn't have the coping mechanisms back then to prioritise my wellbeing. I think this problem is going to become amplified with the increased digital load that we're all seeing, especially educators. And also being aware that sometimes the environment in which we're in, the water in which we swim makes it feel like, well, everybody's doing it. So it's normal. And having these conversations to highlight, it's not normal to constantly forget about your basic human needs of sleep, movement, rest. It's not normal to feel like your body is about to stop when you're in the classroom. We need to be having, this is why I applaud you for the work that you do. We need to be having open dialogue about this. We have to challenge that culture that we always need to push and grind and hustle and keep going. We need to question the norm that schools are busy places. This is just how schools operate. Because firstly, we're going to burn teachers out and we're already seeing that. But secondly, we are role modeling to our students the types of behaviours and norms and and practices that we are expecting. You know, when we expect kids to be submitting work late at night, we all know they all wait till the last minute and submit it then. When we are sending them a reply on their LMS or writing to them late at night or marking their work or replying to parent emails at night, we are fueling this always-on culture. And Brené Brown acknowledges that it takes real courage to push back in a society where busyness is revered. You know, the busy badge that we often talk about, it takes real brave, bold action to say, I'm not going to keep going. You know, in in the book, I talk about how we are actually not machines. We are biologically not designed to work for long periods. We actually have something called ultradian rhythms. And biologically, we are designed to roughly work for 90 minutes. We go through a trough. Now we can ignore that trough and keep pushing through and not taking the coffee break at morning tea, not going to the staff room. But if we take that trough, we'll then have another 90-minute peak with our ultradian rhythm, and then we can keep going. But what I'm seeing is people keep going and going and going, and we are seeing the dire consequences. You know, we just are not designed to keep working in that cadence. We really aren't. And if you are working like that, 
the harsh reality is you are working against your biological blueprint and the, the consequences will catch up with you. And I'm here to tell you as somebody who has experienced burnout on more than one occasion, burnout will come at the most inconvenient, inopportune time. You don't get to pick when you have it. It will come and bite you on the backside and it will wipe you out and it will really have really serious consequences. Yeah, I love that reminder that we can't outrun our neurobiology. There's no shortcut. There's no hack enough to outrun our humanness. Yeah, and we've got to go back to, you know, I often say as humans, we're not complicated. We need to eat. I know you've got a beautiful framework, Meg. We, you know, we need to eat, we need to sleep, we need to move, we need to connect with others, we need good quality nutrition. You know, they're really basic biological needs that we have. And I think our tech habits are impacting all of those in some overt, some more subtle ways, but we cannot ignore that fact. Um, we cannot outperform our biology and we really need to question this cultural norm. And I'm going to say it is amplified in the education sector. I work across all sectors and I'm privy to seeing the ins and outs of a whole range of different industries. And I am here to say that educators, not having a go, but are amongst the worst at pushing and keep going because we're givers. We are nurturers. We're compassionate people. We want to serve and we want to help. The only way you can really do that is if you put your oxygen mask on first. If you start to prioritize your well-being, in the book I talk about how rest has to be a responsibility. It's not a reward. Rest is not something that you save up for school holidays. Rest is not something that you do on Sunday afternoon when Saturday sport's over, you've done all your marking, you've prepped for the week. Rest has to be baked into our days. And that's a really big cultural shift, I think, generally but especially in education. So what do you think is available to us if we tame our tech habits? What's the hope? What's the potential if we can put the effort in and wrangle this relationship? Yeah, I think we can thrive in the digital world. And I don't think we need to give up our Netflix subscription. I don't think you need to have to cancel your social media accounts. I don't think you need to do a digital detox. I think we can forge a really healthy, productive relationship with our technology, but we have to take back control. So it, it's simple things like managing your notification. You know, you can now bundle or batch your notifications to come to you at a time that suits you. So rather than them you know, constantly dribbling in throughout the day, you can choose when the myriad of WhatsApp notifications come to you or when all your team's notifications come to you. You can put your phone on focus mode. There are really pragmatic things that we can do to take back that control. I, don't, I hope I'm not spoiling it, but in the book, I, I share a really powerful story where I had a serendipitous moment where I met a palliative care nurse. And this particular palliative care nurse, I started chatting to her at a coffee shop and I asked her, has she seen any changes in recent years? I'd asked if she'd read the book, The Top Five Regrets of the Dying by Bronnie Ware. And she said that she had, and she said, yes, I still see the same top five regrets in the dying, but she said, I'm seeing a new one creeping in. And she said to me, people, especially in their forties and fifties who are tragically facing the end of their life, people are now saying, I wished I'd spent less time on my phone. I wish I'd spent less time online. I worry that the tech that we all now use that has infiltrated our lives has been designed to rob us of our most important human resources. It's been designed to rob us of our time and it's been designed to rob us of our attention. They are two non-renewable, most fundamental needs. 
and our tech habits are significantly impacting that. So I believe if we can take back that control and use the tech in a way that we want, you know, I couldn't live without the Maps app. I couldn't live without my second favourite is the Notes app, you know, where I can quickly jot something down so I don't forget it. It's all about how we can have these productive relationships but so the tech works for us not the other way around where we work for the device, where we are that slave to the screen instead of the master of it. So when it comes to some of the micro habits and you share so many in the book and with each habit, I thought, yeah, I can do that. That's possible. They're so micro that it makes sense in a busy, busy world. You don't think I have to take time off for three months. These are all accessible. From all of the ones you've learned, which ones have become a part of your daily life? So my favorites, the first one is identifying what I call my chronotype. Your chronotype is biologically determined. It's baked into your DNA. It's determined by your PER3 gene and your chronotype dictates when you're most focused and alert. Now I am an early bird. I wake up in the very early hours of the morning. Naturally, I always have done that. And so for me, my most productive time is early in the morning. Now I've got three young kids, so I don't have, you know, a huge morning routine and uninterrupted, but I really prioritize that first part of the day where I can get my focused work done without distractions. So I do not have my phone turn on first thing in the morning. I do not check emails first thing in the morning because we start that feeling of responsiveness straight away. So I try to preserve that time. The next micro habit that I've found really helpful is to build a fortress around my focus. It's so hard to ignore your phone when it's pinging near you. Even just seeing your phone, even if it's on silent and face down, drops your cognitive performance by roughly 10%. So put simply seeing your phone makes you about 10% dumber. I can't be any more direct than that. So can you pop your phone, not for the whole day, but when you want to get your program written, when you want to finally finish the, the student reports that are weighing on your shoulders, put your tech temptations away. So really build that fortress around your focus. And the third one is, I mentioned one before about our notifications, but I've got three golden rules with notifications. First and foremost, disable non-essential notifications. Notifications hijack our attention. Our brain cannot differentiate between a team's notification and a tiger chasing us. They are both perceived by our brain as a potential stressor because they come to us. We have brains that are designed to go and get information, to go and forage, but when something comes to us, like an alert or a vibration or a flash, it elicits that stress response. So turn off all non-essential notifications. When you are distracted, I'm not sure if you've read this yet, Meg, but it takes the average adult 23 minutes and 15 seconds to reorient their attention after a distraction. Now that distraction could be a colleague that pops by your desk just for a quick chat. It could be your phone ringing. It could just be the email dancing on the corner of your screen. So disable non-essential notifications. The second one I mentioned before, bundle or batch your notifications. So choose what time you want them to come to you. So maybe you only want to check emails at the beginning and at the end of the day, or maybe once quickly at lunchtime. And then the third one is to create VIP lists. So when you put your phone or your laptop on focus mode or do not disturb mode, everybody else gets blocked except for those critical people. So maybe if you've got young children, it's childcare or schools. If you've got aging parents, perhaps it's an aged care facility, your, your parents' phone number. If you've got a team member who will need to get through to you or you're on an excursion and you need the office to still be able to get through, but everybody else gets blocked. And I think those things, 
they're quite simple. You know, they're not convoluted. We don't have to overhaul everything. If we can work with our chronotype, if we can build that fortress around our focus and manage our notifications, I think we're well on our way to forming healthier tech habits. And I know you've been doing this work, Christy, in schools, in corporate, in small business, big business. What are some of the common responses you get once people have started to play with this and started to create a bit more space in their life and have a healthier relationship with their tech? Overwhelmingly, people are really responsive because they love that what I share is grounded in neuroscience and psychology. It's really hard to argue with facts and science. So that's partly why I do share it from that that perspective. People really like the fact that they're simple things. It's not convoluted. And in the book and when I speak, I often present what I call a menu of micro habits. So it's not an exhaustive checklist. It's not step one to step 20 that you have to do in a prescriptive order. The idea is that you cherry pick the small little things that will work for you, the the little micro habits that will work for your context, that will work for your stage of life, that will work for your role. You know, I pity the poor teachers who do have that job of finding casual teachers because it would be lovely not to touch your phone first thing in the morning, but it would be chaotic if you didn't do that. So we have to bear in mind there are some certain roles and demands that do have certain responsibilities. But overwhelmingly, people are shocked at the really simple things they can do and the huge cascading consequences that can result. Simple things like getting sunlight, moving more frequently throughout our day. I think we've also become conditioned, as we talked about before, to always being busy and doing, and we've almost passively accepted that we now live in a distractible world. And it's not until we make some changes and go, I can get so much more done when I put my phone somewhere where I can't see it or where I don't have notifications constantly pinging at me, you know, and I think people need tangible lived experience of what the benefits are. You know, something as simple, like I challenge people and say, I know you're probably not going to think it makes much of a difference, but give yourself a digital curfew, ideally 60 minutes before you go to sleep. If you have a fitness tracker, just notice, just watch and see if you notice any differences. And I have so many people come back and say, I cannot believe how much of a difference my sleep score has shifted and I really haven't done much else. So I think small little things, I often say, don't eat the whole watermelon, just take small little bites. And if we do that over time, we can stack some of those habits on top of each other. I know from listening to your work and reading your work, something that was really clear to me over a period of time was, oh, I can think again. Like I can actually think thoughts through instead of just having moments of thoughts that just go into the abyss. I can think thoughts through to the next thought, to the next thought, and actually have that depth now that I've got a little bit more headspace. Again, we've become conditioned to always processing information. You know, we wait for our coffee, we pull out our phone. We wait in school pickup line, we pull out our phone. We get in the lift, we pull out our phone. And we need pockets of white space. Neuroscientists call it the default mode network. It's what we used to call daydreaming. You know, we used to have pockets throughout the day of idle time where we would daydream. And that's where ideas germinate. That's where you solve complex problems that you spent months agonizing over. We don't, I don't know about you, Meg, I've never had a good idea in my inbox or in an Excel spreadsheet. My creative lesson ideas came when I was swimming or going for a run or going on a plane with no Wi-Fi. And so it's those pockets of time that we have to, I think, preserve because today it's so easy to fill that white space with our devices. So it's being, I think, more cognizant that we need to put those boundaries in place. Christy, to wrap up this incredible conversation, I'd love to invite you to finish four sentences. Are you up for that? I'm ready. 
I am inspired by caring professionals, people that do work that lights them up. I don't think there's anything more exciting than being in the presence of someone who truly loves what they do. When life feels hard, I get in the ocean, vitamin C every time. I don't know what it is year round, vitamin C for the win. An underrated skill is listening. And I'm looking forward to going on holidays with no Wi-Fi later this year. Sounds like heaven. Christy, thank you so much for putting your heart and soul into this book because it is going to transform lives and it's actually going to give people their life back. So thank you so much for the book and thank you for being a guest on the School of Wellbeing podcast. Pleasure. Thank you. I hope this conversation with Christy has opened your mind and empowered you to take action and take control of your digital devices. Christy's book, Dear Digital, We Need a Talk, is now available online and in bookstores. To learn more about Dr. Christy Goodwin and the wonderful work she is doing in the world, see the show notes for all the ways that you can connect and learn more. If you would like to go in the draw to win a brand new copy of Dear Digital, make sure you subscribe to my newsletter for more details. If you love the show, please share it with anyone you think would benefit from listening or reach out to me on Instagram or LinkedIn and let me know what resonated most with you. To learn more about the ways that I can help you and your school community thrive, visit my website, openmindeducation.com. There you can book me to speak at your next event, learn about my game-changing wellbeing programs or download my free five-step energy guide. You can find all the links from today's episode at openmindeducation.com forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the School of Wellbeing. And I look forward to sharing more heartfelt conversations with you next week. Until then, take care and take deliberate action.